Hello and welcome to Weltkiosk Talks. I'm Alexandra Steffes, co-founder of Weltkiosk. Weltkiosk Talks is a new events and podcast series. It is a long-term project where we explore the state of international journalism. Together with journalists, authors and news professionals, we reflect on how news, foreign news in particular, is gathered and gets reported today. How we learn about what's going on in the world and how we can champion the best in international journalism which has been our motto from the start. Henninghoff and I founded Weltkiosk in London in 2010, in part to publish the German edition of Ahmed Rashid's Descent into Chaos, or Sturz ins Chaos, about the war in Afghanistan and the role of Pakistan. The book filled an enormous information gap, not least in Germany. The country had troops in Afghanistan, but no one really knew what was going on. Ahmed Rashid, a veteran Pakistani journalist, had written the book to explain it all. The first print run sold out in two days and Sturz ins Chaos entered the Spiegel bestseller list. We've since moved to Berlin and as part of reinventing our publishing house, we're bringing you Weltkiosk Talks as a podcast so that more of our readers can join the conversation. The first Weltkiosk Talk took place in October in Berlin. Susanne Köbel, foreign reporter for Der Spiegel, was interviewed by Henning. Well, it's a huge pleasure to welcome Susanne Köbel as our first guest um, at Velkios Talks, Susanne is an award-winning journalist and author. She's been reporting for Der Spiegel for over 15 years from virtually all the trouble spots in the world, often under difficult, if not dangerous, conditions. Countries she's been reporting from extensively include uh, Afghanistan, uh, about which she wrote a book, um, Voices from a Dark Place, Pakistan, North Korea, S Syria, Sudan, and most recently Saudi Arabia about which uh, Susanne has written another book, 12 Weeks in Riyadh, which I just briefly show. This is the German edition, and there will be an English edition out quite soon as well. She has been, uh, she has interviewed Sirius Bashar Assad, Sudan's Omar Bashir, Hamas leader Khaled Mashal, Hamid Kazai, Pervez Musarraf, US General Stanley McChrystal, as well as various heads of secret intelligence services around the world, including Faisal Al-Turki from Saudi Arabia. Actually, I think there's no intelligence chief, you don't know, isn't that right, Susanna? Well, we, 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 we get into that in a moment. She is fascinated by society's upheaval. Her style is clear and to the point. And as a reader, you always know she cares about the people she meets. With her reporting, she broadens our understanding of the world. So welcome, Susanna Kerbel. Thank you very much. It's a great honor. I want to, to talk with Susanne in, sort of in three parts, and the first one is sort of a little personal. I, I wanted to ask you, what drew you to foreign reporting? Because you started out as a, as a journalist covering Germany. Very true. So actually, I'm only covering foreign policy since the very innocent Germany at that time entered the political stage internationally after the wall came down. So actually, it was really a kind of a personal <laughs> development of questions which were driving me and um, I grew up in Munich which is in the very south of uh, Germany and it was a very divided society then uh, so you either had uh, have been a supporter of uh, the very very conservative uh, Christian social union party which was really right-wing and almost I would say sympathizing with uh, I mean, not Nazi, um, whatever uh, spirit, but at least there was a saying, 
we should always take care of, of the right borders of our society. So they wanted to include these parts. So either you belong to them or you belong to the very, very leftist. And uh, certainly if you are young and uh, whatever, you don't come from a very wealthy or well-off family, you would say, I certainly would, would feel more sympathy with, with, with these people. So coming from that part of the society, I supported the um, peace movement. And once the, the wall came down, Germany became a sovereign state all of a sudden and needed to make a sovereign foreign policy. And that meant, logically, that it also comes back on the international stage when it comes to military missions. So I was like alerted and said, wow, if this is going to happen, I mean, who will they send? Where will we go to? What kind of legacy will we create in, in these uh, spots of the world? So I was really curious and driven by that uh, idea you need to take care of that nothing goes wrong, I mean, which is a complete... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> over exaggeration of or over estimation of what what media can do but at least we tried or i tried so and this got me to all these places first of all certainly uh to the balkans and then later on to afghanistan and now we are we became a very normal player in that uh, in, in that field and this made me finally a foreign correspondent yeah. <laughs> What is um, what is a normal day for a foreign correspondent? Could could you describe sort of wha what kind of? <laughs> I mean, maybe it's not so different from people who have invested their money in in stocks. I mean, you're following twenty four seven more or less. Yeah, you're you're always on your phone. You're always on Twitter and on some uh, newsletters uh, you have uh, signed up for. That's the last thing you do in the night, and it's the first thing you do in the morning, and. Um, Meeting people is one of the very, very time-consuming things. I just come back from a meeting with one of our former intelligence chiefs, and uh, we were discussing a couple of things. So meeting people who have access to certain information, to news, to certain people, that's I would say, is one of the major things um, we do, uh, creating access which are not available for common people. Mm. And certainly traveling is a big part. Um, I just come back. I actually spent the, the September more or less in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia. Then there was this attack on Saudi oil facilities, which was a major blow to their to everything. I mean, like to their wealth, to their existence even, because, I mean, if you can be hit in a second and half of your economic basis is gone and that also means that next time they can hit whatever the the high rises in the center of your capital that definitely means that that's a threat and um, so I was only back for two or three days and then this happened and I rushed back again I was actually in a train when I received the call and they said isn't it that you're around Frankfurt there is a there is a flight going in two hours and 20 minutes. Do you mind? <laughs> so it was back then. And this is a pretty normal, hmm. normal um, day. month or month. Oh, day. Yes. Yes. We, we come, come back to Saudi in a moment. You've also been in, in situations where, where, where you actually really sort of been in danger. Um, uh, Afghanistan, for instance. Sort of, uh, what was the hairiest moment? Actually, 
those moments I'm not super keen to talk about because I blame myself mm. for being really silly. It most of the time comes completely out of the blue. It happened the first time in Kosovo where I was, well, at that time I has been a really quite inexperienced foreign correspondent. And um, the situation when the German army at, this, at the first time entered a territory by themselves and, and covered it by themselves, everything looked quiet and I was actually thinking we still need to stay somewhere at overnight and I was entering the city and all of a sudden shooting came from all over and I really didn't understand the situation. Super silly because it's not what you do. You just look around where you are. You possibly make yourself a little bit more invisible. You are more cautious, more careful. You maybe possibly ask somebody who knows the place better than you know. So that was one. Um, a couple of people were killed and and I was pretty much shocked. Other situations which sound much less spectacular was in accidents. I mean, one of the source nobody <laughs> really <laughs> tells you much about because it's it's might sound more heroic if you are shot. No, it's accidents. Yeah, you are in the middle of nowhere and you have an accident and. Uh, we had a couple of, and um, once, I mean, you have drivers who drive like 20 hours a day and to possibly smoke, whatever say smoke, I don't know, something what keeps them awake and in a good mood. And um, all these things, those are the moments which are most risky. And uh, suddenly, um, shootings, the shootings which come out of the blue. Once we had that in... Afghanistan, in mm. Kandahar. But I was with a tribal leader, so most likely it's not that we were meant, it most mm. likely was him, but we escaped. <laughs> Another time it was actually an almost crash with a plane, mm. which finally crashed indeed in Kunduz, but we still landed. I mean, mm. it's it doesn't sound very spectacular, but mm. these are the moments you can die. Mm. You also mentioned once that you, you escaped by, by wearing a burqa, is that right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, there was a situation that the Taliban, I think it was in 2016, had overthrown, they entered the city of Kunduz, which was a kind of a German... Well, it, it was it was a German... <laughs> it was a kind of a German city. I mean, the Germans have put all their resources into that city for like 10 or 12 years, 13 years. And um, I've been to Kunduz many, many times. And it was actually an almost flourishing city. And then all of a sudden, the, the Taliban, once that was, I think, 14 for the first time, entered the city and, or fif 15. 14 was the withdrawal of the Germans. 15 is the first time when the Taliban came to the city, conquered it, kicked out all the security personnel. I mean, they didn't hold it for very long but they stole everything until the last pen, chair, anything. Yeah? I mean, everything which was invested in the city for over the course of 10 years was stolen, uh, loaded on trucks, and went to the Taliban territories. And the last time, the situation was completely different. I entered the city, I flew in with an UN flight because commercial flights didn't go anymore. 
and the UN flights only go once a week. So you definitely need to stay there for a week, whatever happens. And this was already a, a quite unpleasant um, idea because uh, a week can be very long. The thing is, I didn't have anything to stay because people were so much afraid of hosting somebody, which they always did before, because they would could be considered as collaborators, so that nobody wanted to host me. Even the guest houses didn't offer me a room. So finally, I ended up staying in the governor's house. So we shared not one room, <laughs> but we shared that, that place. So he was staying at his office, and I was staying in his private bedroom or whatever that was and we shared a bathroom and that was going for one week and then the flight didn't go because of the weather condition yeah so i said no not another week and i was wondering how to get back so i finally and for the first time bought a burka and hired a car and went back by car yeah. <laughs> is it is it different to for being a woman in in reporting from foreign countries I have been asked this question many times. I never saw this as a disadvantage. Uh, differently than you would think, women are considered as professionals. Everybody knows that the cultures are different and that uh, even very, very conservative Taliban, there was one single guy who is a Salafi, uh, whatever, who is very closely connected to Saudi Arabia, so he refused to meet. But then he ran for, for president a couple of years later, and then he didn't have a problem to meet women mm. any longer. So actually, they're very flexible when it comes to their own interests and um, if it somehow fits in what they want to achieve. No, I wouldn't say no. Mm. It's, it's not really a disadvantage. Mm. And uh, I think some things are the same all over the world. Mm. <laughs> There's a kind of a curiosity if a woman walks into the room. The only thing is they were always thinking that my photographer is either my husband or my boss, mm. but I can live with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you, you spent, as you said, uh, uh, 12 weeks in, in Riyadh. It's, it's the title of the book. You sp spent actually much longer and uh, you, you managed to get behind the scenes in, uh, of Saudi uh, society, which is 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 changing under uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the um, young crown prince who is not even thirty, or maybe he's just turned thirty. What was the biggest surprise you you found in this sort of society, which was until then was very closed, and now we of course hear that women are allowed to drive. There's certain kind of the relaxation of of the suppression of, of women in Saudi. What was the, the thing which, which sort of made you most reflect about your own preconceptions? Actually, it was one of the greatest times in my reporting life. Indeed, I was actually traveling there since 2011. And 2011, remember, that was the time of the Arab Spring. And uh, so it was an interesting time because it was a slight opening in the society people started to discuss things and it was very interesting but it was super conservative you cannot imagine how wherever you went empty cities nobody outside no social life just nobody it's as nuclear bomb just landed or something and cars are still there people are disappeared yeah and when i started to meet people at that time we really didn't know where 
there was nothing. There was no coffee shop, nothing where you could meet anybody. At the same time, it's not the thing they do to invite people home. But there have been some Starbucks coffee shops. So that was eight years ago where we met. But you only could meet females. Then. So these technical, logistical things were very difficult then. I was traveling all around, I mean, into all these cities. I always had a four weeks lasting visa, and I made use of that and took full advantage from first to last day. And um, I, I built a kind of a network at that time, which was very helpful, or still is very helpful. Many of these people are either not alive anymore, or they are, I mean, only some like Jamal Kanchochi, or are in prison. Many of them are in prison now. But the time I was living there, or, or moving there, was an incredible time. It was a historic time. I mean, it's really the best thing a reporter can uh, live through. It. So I moved there at the end of 2017. And it was the time you woke up in the morning, you opened your phone, and another incredible thing happened. Like, all of a sudden, the crown prince said, Women do not have to wear an abaya anymore. You were looking around, everybody wore an abaya still, certainly. But it was like it started, the things are... Then an invitation to a pop concert to Jeddah. So I went there, I couldn't believe what I saw. Indeed, young ladies who you always only saw with a kneecap, all of a sudden came out in the open with long hair like this, pink light blue abayas, which were more like fancy coats or something, yeah. Beautiful makeup and a festival atmosphere, mood. Women all of a sudden started to think about business. You walked into a supermarket and at the cashier there was a lady. You talked to women who had, I, for instance, I knew a lady who is an advocate, she's a lawyer. And she was the owner of one of the largest law firms in Riyadh with, I think, 60 employees. But she, at that time, didn't have the permission to defend anybody in front of the court. Even she had studied in the States. And she had so many people who were working for her and actually took her advice. Hmm? And all of a sudden, she could. Yeah. So this empowerment of, of women in particular was, was amazing. Everything was open for discussion all of a sudden. And everybody was very enthusiastic. But there was a downside. People disappeared. People who have criticized, for instance, the, the so-called PIO, that's the Saudi Arabia plans to, to take um, Aramco, the largest oil company in the world, which is state-owned by the Saudi state, to the stock market. And they want to sell 5% of the shares. And uh, there was one who, a, a guy who said something, many people, many people share this opinion, this should not happen because it's like the crown jewels of Saudi Arabia. And he disappeared, he's still in court, yeah? So there was both, yeah? wonderful things happened all of a sudden then then there was parks yeah people were out in the parks yeah people had picnic together in the open men and women obviously could meet which was 
never happened before, never. I mean, you need to understand that there is like a restaurant, there's an entrance for females and, the and an entrance for male. And they never meet. <laughs> In universities, there was possibly a teacher, a professor, who were teaching female and male, but there was a wall in the middle, and there was a projection of the teacher in the female section, and the guy was standing in the male section. And all this was about to change. I saw people holding hands. Wow! Yeah? Or I saw people um, sitting in a restaurant next to each other. Really, nothing spectacular here. <laughs> but there, there was music. All of a sudden, music is complete haram. Music is something which drives your mind and your heart away from God. So certainly there is no music. And musicians were people, sinners, who, were going to, who will go to hell anyway. I know a musician who, a, who became a friend of mine, and uh, he actually only plays the oud, which is a very, very traditional instrument. And um, in his own uh, family, he was, he was so much criticized. For However, all of a sudden, because if you play an instrument, most likely you also have a girlfriend and you most likely drink alcohol. He doesn't drink alcohol and he doesn't have a girlfriend as far as I know, but this is what people think about you. They think very badly about you if you, if you play music. So all of a sudden, there were coffee shops opening, restaurants opening, there was music. Okay, there is no alcohol, but everything else was all of a sudden like in, in London, in Berlin, everywhere. Yeah? And people came back, galleries opened. So every day you went somewhere and you, you would do things which are very, very normal in our, in our life, but were, were completely new and fabulous in this world. Yeah? And th it was great. At the same time, my, my, um, my landlord was a 100% committed Salafi, living there down the street with his three wives and his, I don't know how many children, and uh, was trying to tell me the advantages of um, converting. And I mean, he tried everything to save my soul, definitely. But for me, it was wonderful because I learned so much about these kind of people and their thinking and how they run their little empire. Mm. The sort of empowerment of women in Saudi Arabia is also part of an economic plan. The idea is to change the Saudi economy, which is solely sort of dependent on, on, on the Saudi oil and gas, that to revamp it, you, you need, need a female workforce to modernize the, the economy. In addition to that, you mentioned the, the, the terrible murder of Jamil Khashoggi in Istanbul consulate. Um, this is where the, sort of the, the world opinion about uh, Salman changed dramatically. What would you think? Is it what would you say? Is, is it what kind of guy is he? Is, is, is he a good one, a bad one, is sort of somewhere in between? Or, or how should we understand this kind of rule he's actually um, enacting? Um, it's really a difficult question uh, because you have a young guy who has the guts, who has the, the, the vision to turn this super conservative country around and does exactly that what youth has wished for since so long, and which is also necessary. He's doing a lot of great things. It's definitely so. 
it's also something he is forced to because it's not that Saudi Arabia doesn't have enough oil anymore, but oil is losing its importance. Since there is so much oil now, um, which is um, drilled by the Americans themselves, so they, are, they became independent, um, and the oil market is, is overloaded of, of offers, and it's, it's something that the oil price has dropped so dramatically. Once it was $140 a barrel, and it dropped down to $30 a barrel. And if your economy is completely dependent on this very single commodity you have, your whole economic basis is in, in not only in trouble, it's actually um, threatened, yeah? You, you don't know, I mean, a country which is actually buying loyalties. My neighbor doesn't like me, I'm going to visit him and bring him a little present, let's say $50 million. Or like in Sudan, I mean, just remember what we learned about um, Bashir al-Omar, who is now in prison, but before, I mean, in, in, uh, as a witness, he said, yes, I received, I think, $25 million by um, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, this is how the country works. I mean, you try to co-opt people with money. You try to keep your people happy with money, yeah? The king has a <laughs> is in a good mood and he provides every state employee an additional salary. 80% of the people working in, in Saudi Arabia are state employees. And uh, so this is how they run their country, with money. So once you lose this resource, you, you lose your power. So it's, it's, it's a great threat. It's a big threat to their rule, to their power base. So he, he has to change uh, these things. I mean, whoever runs the country in the future needs to find an alternative to this, um, uh, to this only commodity they, they sell. How is that possible? There is a kind of a trade, I would say. I mean, it's, it's a little bit simplified, but there's a trade. You have more freedom now, but you have more responsibilities. You have to take care of yourself. There was free education, there was free uh, healthcare, there was free uh, university. There's no tax, there was no tax, yeah? That just didn't, didn't exist, yeah? The, the water was, th they didn't really pay for water. I mean, now they have water bills and they're shocked that, wow, I have to pay 200 euros for, m for my water supply, yeah? per month, or electricity, no, they didn't, or gas. I mean, they, they just didn't pay for anything, uh, energy or something. And that's very different now. So it's a normalization, you could say, but this is a country where people are not used to work. There are 20 million Saudi citizens, and then there are additionally 10 million foreigners, like Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Filipinos, and people like that, who are doing the work, gardening, driving, cleaning, all the things which nobody wants to do themselves. And now these days are over and um, the Saudis now shall do this themselves. So more responsibilities, more self-serving, um, they, they shall drive themselves, they shall garden their garden themselves. I mean, and they shall offer these services to others. That's not really working so well 
Yeah, they sent home already three million of these labors, and it's called Saudization, and it's not going so well. But it's at the same time, it's th they don't really have a choice. Maybe it's not the perfect path yet, but the direction is definitely the right one. They are scared for two reasons: because they lose the economic bases, and they know that the state will not take care of them in the future. That's one. And the second thing, they are very scared about the stability of the state in the region. Because as you see around uh, Saudi Arabia, there is chaos in Syria. There is a um, very difficult situation in Egypt. There is Iraq, which is right next to them. I mean, it's uh, chaos, poverty, stability is gone. And now they have the Yemen war. The Yemen war is now in its fifth year. And they see it can happen very quickly, very fast, that things change from one day to another and you are in a war or you are in a, in a military um, mission which you are not winning. And I mean, people are really, really scared that this could turn into um, instability, which, which is scary. Mm. The, the great sort of source of, or the great threat to, to Saudi, of course, is Iran, which is sort of the arch enemy. What is your sense of how, how things are developing? We, we will close to military confrontation uh, in the summer. Um, then Donald Trump backed down. He clearly seems not willing to, 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 to sort of have another war in the Middle East. Um, you, you mentioned earlier the, 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 uh, the attack on the, on the Saudi oil, oil field was, was, sort of was a another fundamental threat to the, to the, to the kingdom. Um, how do you see things developing? I think you told me once that 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 Saudi Arabia and, and, and Israel think that that is their big chance now with, with Trump and the White House to to go go after the Islamic Republic of Iran and uh, and uh, and sort of facilitate um, regime change, but that doesn't look like it anymore. I think the the attack on the on the oil fields and that Trump was not ready to retaliate or to assist any kind of punishment or whatever, showed very clearly that the US will not defend its ally any longer, which is a shock, by the way, same as for us. <laughs> They would not come to defend Germany anymore. Interesting. Uh, but that's the truth. And Iran knows about that. And Saudi is very nervous. And this is why they, for instance, started the mission in Yemen. They were of the opinion, we show off. We show that we are capable, strong, have a much better military leverage here. And they failed. And after the, um, the attacks on the oil field, it shows they cannot defend themselves. Historically, this is all goes all back to um, the end of the of the Cold War. I mean, America actually was defending Europe and had this connection with Saudi Arabia and, and, and their allies because of the world was divided in in two big players and Saudi was on the on the American side. All of this is not the case any longer. What does this do to a new Saudi ruler who feels that he needs to legitimize, stabilize, and implement his power? He shows off force, like in Yemen. He shows off force, like in Qatar. 
both didn't go very well. Qatar is now leaning towards Iran and uh, Turkey, which are also arch enemies, uh, or Turkey same became an arch enemy. <laughs> what you see is rulers who become more and more nervous feel that former friends, former allies became traitors and do only use them as a market to, to, to sell their weapons and arms and equipment to. So they feel pretty much left alone. And that can lead to all kind of uh, tension. I mean, Iran is indeed using their connection with militias in Yemen, in Lebanon, other places. So they feel surrounded by Iran, and that could lead to smaller skirmishes. I would say not not a full-fledged war or something, not yet. Yeah, I don't see that. Nobody wants that. Nobody can afford that. But it's a very nervous situation, so you cannot really predict. It's a rather scary world you, you're, you're painting there. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the way media goes and, and what we what we know about the world. Uh, uh, there's a quote uh, I read about 10 years ago, and I, I still sort of found it very fitting in a way. We are living in a world where more and more is known, but less and less understood. Would you agree? I think we live in a very difficult world, which is very, very difficult to understand. And especially at the spots we are talking, Saudi, for instance, is a very discrete society. It's, it's very difficult to really understand what's going on, who is really, um, who are really the couple of decision-making people, who are really the influential consultants. But this is, for instance, uh, what, what I did for the last couple of weeks to find out about that. What does it need for that? Time, a lot of time. I'm glad to work for a publishing company which still invests in its reportings like They allowed me to live there for many months. To travel there is very expensive. And that's the only thing you can do. Invest your time, meet the right people, and do this for a long time. To understand the Middle East, you have to travel all the time. I mean, you need to go to Israel to find out what they think about Saudi Arabia, why they are new friends now. That's really wild. I mean, that was impossible. Now they are friends because they have a common enemy, which is Iran. Who is friend with whom and why? Like, go back to the Kurds now. I mean, we have this new situation now in North Syria. All of a sudden, the Kurds turn back to Assad. They tried everything to possibly leave this uh, connection behind and, and possibly found a new state or whatever. And now they have to go back to Assad to fight Erdogan. So... Alliances are changing all the time. Everything we thought was for sure or was something logical can change the other day. It's, it's and time is the only currency. Time and money is the only currency I can recommend. And um, this is how we can come the closest. And how many, how many journalists still do have these resources? Not very many. Mm. As someone who's traveling back and forth, sort of, What's your impression sort of how well are we uh, how well informed are we as a, as a society? Something which is a real gap, I have to admit, and I uh, take the blame uh, as well as my colleagues would need to take it too. We are always reporting in a alarming mode because this is how the story creates attention. I wrote a book 
where I try to do something different to really tell the many tales a reporter experiences. But this is something I'm not sure whether people would like to read that in their newspaper or maybe, but this is not what we do. I mean, there's only so and so many spots in our magazine, so and so many stories, and certainly the, the most exciting stories and maybe the most brutal story will win, or the most funny. We never show really the normal life. In all these places where we write about wars, there is life, people marry, people love each other, people are, are uh, farming, people are having parties. Life goes on everywhere. So this is something we miss to report because the normal life we believe nobody is interested in. But these are normal people and there is normal life going on and the war is not all over the country. For instance, this is something uh, I think we kind of mislead um, our audience. Mm. So um, thank you for being our first guest and um, please join me all in thanking Susanne and have a nice evening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Henning Hoff speaking with Susanne Kölbel. Her book, Zwölf Wochen in Riyadh, is available now. The English translation is titled Behind the Kingdom's Veil, the New Saudi Arabia under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and will be out in 2020. And that's all for this edition. Thanks to our producer, Susan Stone. Do join us again in 2020. Bye for now from Weltkiosk Talks. Mm -hmm.